1: because it's time, it's,
2: it's time for reparations.
0: So I'm sick of being a side Indian character.
2: LGBTIQ rights are black rights.
0: It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me.
3: I'm Gary Foley.
0: I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to The Race
4: Card. I'm your host, Amia Ziyard, and joining me in the studio today is Ahmed Yusuf. Hey! Now, before we begin, we'd like to do acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet, and we pay respects to their elders, past, present, and future. This land was never ceded, and the processes of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we chat politics, current affairs, and pop culture with a little bit of a twist. And joining us in studio is Benjamin Law. And today we'll be looking at how Paul Sheehan's infamous article about Louise was able to be published, racism in the fashion industry, and our feature discussion is on English as the language of the World Wide Web.
2: What's going on, people? This is Akala, and right now you're listening to The Race Card.
5: Big up. This week we've got Benjamin Law, writer and creator of the new TV show, The Family Law. Uh, hey Ben, thanks for coming on the show.
6: Hey, thanks for having me.
5: Yeah, it's, it's a pretty big deal for you to come to the, come on the show. We've had a, we had a few really cool guests and I'm, and I'm really happy and excited for, for this interview.
6: Oh, well, I, I'm really stoked to be a part of it. I, I, I'm familiar with the guests that you've been interviewing, so I'm very, very stoked to be in the mix.
5: Yeah. Uh, so I guess, like, what we've wanted to talk to you about is, like, writing in television, especially in Australia, as um, a person of colour, a non-white person, uh-huh. is, is pretty difficult. How do you make
6: your start? Well, it's interesting. Um, So, my background is probably in feature writing and journalism. So, back in the day, um, you know, I think I probably watched like Almost Famous, the movie, and thought I really wanted to be a rock journalist. So, I I did a lot of street press journalism for a long time, studied creative writing um, at university, and while I was studying writing, I was also editing the student magazine magazine as well and i don't know it's funny like I, it never really was at the forefront of my mind to, to uh, that i was the, a, a writer who happened to be a person of color you know it wasn't really the stuff i was writing about when i did become aware of it was when i was asked to write more about myself and the thing about writing about yourself is you have to write about the people around you you know your family your your friends your partner and that that brought up a lot of um Issues And I think it was a really great talking point. You know, the fact that I am Chinese-Australian, that perspective comes up in my work just by default. The fact that I am gay comes up in my work by default as as the perspective of being a white straight person comes up in white straight people's writing as well, whether they're aware of it or not.
5: <laughs> yeah, because um, oh, well, let's, let's talk about, like, I guess, trying to, to navigate all of that. Right, Because it's difficult um, trying to figure out your own identity and how that works with your writing and also not making that the biggest thing about your writing. I'm not, let's for example, I don't know, I'm not um, a Chinese writer, I'm just a writer or I'm not a gay writer, I'm I'm just a writer. Whereas you don't see those kind of connotations with, say, white writers or straight writers and, 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 and the like.
6: Yeah, I mean, in a way, I guess, Ahmed, we're talking about being pigeonholed. And to, to be honest, we don't really have too much control over how we are pigeonholed. And I guess maybe I'm sort of lucky in that I've been pigeonholed in a lot of ways. Some editors see me as that Gen Y writer. Some readers probably see me as that gay writer. Other people probably see me as that gay writer. And to an extent, I'm happy to embrace all those things because they're not wrong. You know, <laughs> You know what I mean? Like I am all of those things. But at the same time whether those things come into play or not really depends about the subject matter I'm writing about. So when I'm writing a column or if I'm writing a, a memoir, those issues um, or those facets of, of who I am tend to come into play. But I think to an extent as well, the reason why I'm attracted even to you know the subjects of journalism that I've written about do come from the experience of being a slight outsider. When I grew up in Queensland, it was a very, very monocultural predominantly white, uh, we, my family, stood out a lot as well. So you, you are aware of being different and maybe there's a part of that experience that means that I'm attracted to other stories of difference, other people's experiences of being different. I tend to like reading stories about people or communities I've not even encountered before.
3: That's awesome, Ben. Um... I want to know um,
2: mm-hmm.
3: what you're possibly trying to come to terms with through your writing. Like, I mean, other than what I understood was you know, what it means to be gay or what it means to be a minority group. Like, are there any other things that you're trying to come to terms with?
6: I'm not sure I'm necessarily trying to come to terms with stuff in my writing. I mean, that that almost, <laughs> you know, a lot of writing can be good therapy for some people, I imagine. But I do know, you know, it's funny, when I was writing The Family Law, which was my first book um, that came out in 2010, and yeah. it's what the TV show is based on. Yeah. Um, I wasn't really sure why I was writing it. It's not like I had a right. mission statement or it's not like I was trying to work out who I was in my mind because by that stage, I was in my late 20s. I was pretty sure of who I was. Okay. But I think looking back, I think I was writing a book that I wish I'd read when I was growing up. Right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there There weren't many books that I was reading about Chinese-Australian people. There weren't many TV shows or movies that I was seeing about Chinese-Australian people. In fact, you know, if we even stretch it out further, there weren't many representations of Asian Australian people or non-white Australians, period. (laughs) And, um, you know, I just thought, wow, if a book like that had existed when I was growing up, maybe I would have been a bit more comfortable in my own skin. You know, so by the time I wrote the book, I think I was pretty comfortable in my own skin. But um, I think maybe it was kind of a length to myself like yeah. a former version of myself in a way yeah. like this is the stuff this is what you are this is what your family is one day you'll be able to be okay with it and maybe even laugh which is you know what i've set out to do with the book and the show yeah
3: and it's funny because many many people of um uh, of color often say i or writers often say that i write because i wanted to um read something that i could relate to or
6: something that was about me yeah yeah um, totally yeah. i think so was well. And, and I think those things, um, you know, it's interesting as this show has come out, most of the response, you know, the response that we anticipated as well has been from a lot of Chinese Australians and more broadly speaking, Asian Australians saying, oh my yeah. God, there's like a family like us on television. We identify <laughs> with that. Okay. But what's, what's also been really gratifying is hearing people who are not of an Asian background whatsoever yep. saying, wow that's my family on screen as well or wow I totally identify with this character and that character which is you know as people of color what we've been doing our entire lives with a lot of white characters as well it's like wow I really identify with Meryl Streep in that role you know it it has so little to do with um, her race or ethnic background and that's kind of ideally what maybe we want to promote as well the fact that you know, I, I was listening to this um, podcast with Aziz Ansari the other day. You know, the American comedian, um, and he was saying, "Guys, when we watch films, we're identifying with characters who are animated fish or <laughs> monsters. Like, there's yeah. no, there's no reason we can't identify with each other, Absolutely. even though, even though those cultural and racial specifics are there to characters. There are some more universal things that I think you can totally explore in in stories.
4: All right. Hi, Ben. It's Amina. So speaking of hey. hey. <laughs> so speaking of reception and the power of representation in the media, um, as you mentioned earlier, um, how does the reception of your work influence or shape your writing process?
6: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I really want to say no. It doesn't influence it at all, but I totally read reviews and tweets <laughs> and stuff, so of course so of course, I'm thinking about that sort of stuff. Um, look, to be honest, it's not so much the reception from audiences that really influences how I write. It's probably more the feedback that I get as we're writing from my editors, if I'm writing a book or if I'm writing a feature article, or from my producers uh, when we're writing the TV show and my script editors because these are people I'm working with because I trust them, and um, so I, I, I'm always taking into account their feedback and what they think about that sort of stuff, and when the reviews come out, I mean, after after a TV show has been released, you know, the family law has played in its entirety on SBS now, and it's been interesting reading some people's feedback, most of which is positive. Other people have provided some criticism, and there have been a few things where I'm like, yeah, maybe that's got a point. but. Um, You know There are other criticisms as well that you don't necessarily want to take on board or you disagree with. Like for instance, there have been a few people saying, this show really perpetuates stereotypes and I have to think to myself, well, what sort of stereotypes, like is it a Chinese father working in a Chinese restaurant because my dad did that for a living, does that make him a stereotype? So those sorts of things I, I challenge and contest but really in the end. What we're trying to do is really make a funny, heartbreaking show about a Chinese Australian family going through a marriage breakup because that's the funniest thing in the world. Um, and and as long as my producers and I and the other writers are on the same page, then I don't really pay too much attention to to other people's feedback.
4: Yeah, and so just speaking on you know editors, writers, and producers, do you ever butt heads and is there anything you wouldn't compromise on?
6: <laughs> we, we always do. No, no, we, we don't really. Um, it's funny because season one, we had to... You know, making a TV show is like creating a small little family of, its, of our own. You have to have people who trust each other and you have to laugh at the same things as well. So the writing room was constantly kind of evolving and changing in season one. Now, as we're developing and writing s- season two... It's very much people that we've had a long history with in, in maybe in writing season one or in other ways as well. So we've totally got a shorthand in terms of what we find funny. I mean, it's so pathetic, but um, we were writing a joke for season two the other day and every- Everyone was like, oh, my God, and then this would happen. And then someone else from the table said, and then this will happen. And then Kirsty Fisher, our script editor and our co-writer said, oh, my God, and this is how it finishes. And we just burst out laughing. I mean, there's nothing sadder than people laughing at their own jokes, but we all share the same sense of humor. What, what can be a problem is sometimes when you get network notes or... Um, Like, for instance, you know, we're being broadcast by SBS, the parent company of the production company, Matchbox Pictures, is American as well, so they all have notes as well. The only thing that I was really upset about, and this is like a race card exclusive, the only thing that we were upset about was the fact that we wrote this really great joke that needed the audience to see for a brief second, like even half a second, a a small patch of period blood, uh, and we couldn't show it. So that's that's my only thing that I've been upset about. We can't show period blood on television. You can show someone's head getting ripped off, but not period blood. One
5: of the things I wanted to talk to you about, um, Ben, is that uh, it, your your show isn't, like, um, most notably Tim Watts had a speech in Parliament, which was, which was really interesting. I'll play it in a moment. But he, he basically said, you know, this is just a show about, you know, people. They just happen to be Chinese, Australians. Um, it's a Ooh. show that, any, like you said, anyone could potentially relate to. And I'll just play the clip right now.
1: I rise today to congratulate SBS on commissioning the recent television series, The Family Law, written and developed by Benjamin Law. It's a cracker of a show. I'll laugh a minute. Um, though, you'll have to take my word for it, as I fear that the House's standing orders would preclude me from sharing much of the humour in the show in the Chamber. I'm not sure that quoting Jenny Law would be considered parliamentary. While we are always uh, pleased to see our broadcasters commissioning Australian content, telling Australian stories, it's especially pleasing that this is a comedy show that looks like modern Australia, because this is a show about an Australian family, but the Laws happen to be a Chinese-Australian family. But importantly. Uh, the Law's ethnicity is not the point of this show. As Ben Law himself has said, it's no more a show about Chinese Australians than Seinfeld is a show about white people. Like modern Australia, the show's diversity is simply a reality rather than the premise. It's who we are and who we ought to see. Uh, we ought to see this reality reflected more on our television screens. And, and you
5: know, like, that, that, that point really resonated with me because a lot of the time we get... Mm. Like you were talking about before about stereotypes. A lot of the time we get, like... And you also reference in, in, in that clip we didn't get um, when uh, I think the Lim family came to neighbours and they ate a dog. Like, like really ridiculous racist stereotypes like that. And that was something that you'd always almost see on Australian television. And, and the family law is a refreshing kind of change. And was that something you were very mindful in the writing process to make sure, you know, like we're just you know, regular people. Just because we're Chinese doesn't mean well we're different to the regular Australian, for example.
6: Yeah, like we were really mindful of it in the in the writing process, mainly in the way that we knew very early on that we weren't writing a show about race, which I think is a completely legitimate exercise, by the way, like shows about coming to terms with your place in the world, finding out how you fit in as a migrant family. Those narratives and stories are stories that I'm really drawn to, but it wasn't what we were doing with the family law. At the very heart of it, like I said, it was a comedy about a parent's marriage breakdown and how that affects children and these characters just happen to be Chinese. But at the same time, we couldn't ignore the fact that this was going to be a show with a 90% Chinese-Australian or Asian-Australian cast rather because we've got Japanese-Australian cast in the show as well. Um, And so we were very, very proud of that. We weren't trying to shy away from it. And I think the other thing is... Well, is one of the big things that we've spoken about in the writers' room is what is the truth of this scene? What is the truth of these characters? Which is funny, you know. You'd expect like comedy writers' rooms to just be jokes non nonstop, but a lot of the time we re- wrote the drama first. We wrote the heartbreaking, pull out your guts sort of scenes, and then we applied the comedy undercut to it later. And I think when you do that, what you end up writing are three-dimensional, complex, complicated characters. And when you write characters like that, you can't possibly get stereotypes. Sure, the Asian dad might run a Chinese restaurant. Sure, the mum might get expressions in English hilariously wrong. But there's so much more to their characters besides that, those facets. And that's how you avoid stereotypes.
5: Exactly, because a lot of time we get those stories, but they're the only stories that have any kind of diversity on Australian television screen. So we get into those. We it gets pigeonholed. The only way you can write a story that has a diverse cast is that the person has to be a refugee. They have to have a struggle, some sort of struggle that is race related. Obviously, even even your show has elements of race and and uh, but they but they're elements. They're like like for example, we spoke on the show before like. Race is uh, race is an issue, um, but it's kind of like a chapter in a book, opposed to being the book.
6: Yeah, completely. Because I think that's probably the the lived reality of most Australians. You know, being um, non-white is one facet of who you are. There are all these other facets as well. Maybe you're studying. Maybe you've got complications with your friendships or your partner. All these sorts of things make a whole human being, and similarly with um, you know with with anyone, no matter what their cultural background is. I think all of our stories come from so many different parts, and we were very very clear that these characters would not be emptied of their racial identity, all those cultural specifics like making konji at the breakfast table, or um, you know uh, watching really bad. TV soap operas from Hong Kong. Like, all that stuff would totally be there. But it would be the texture of these people's lives. It wouldn't be the story of their life.
3: Yeah, Ben. Um, so, I've told Ahmed about a podcast I absolutely love. It's called The Mental Illness Happy Hour. I don't know if you've heard of it.
6: No, I haven't. Yeah, so Tell me more about it. Yeah, what is so it?
3: It's, um, it's run by this, name, by this American comedian um, whose name is Paul Gilmartin. He's mm-hmm. absolutely hilarious and his his jokes are very like dark and I absolutely love dark humour. And your mother reminds me of that, of his kind of humour. <laughs> and so in his in his podcast he has this segment called um awful some moments where mm-hmm. basically it's there's where there's an inappropriate situation and um and You basically laugh at that impression situation. So, for example, your coming out story was hilarious. Your mum's response was absolutely hilarious. And for me, that was like an awfulsome moment, if that makes sense.
6: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally.
3: So just check out that podcast. It's great.
6: Oh, awesome. And it's it's great that you bring this new word into my vernacular because... (laughs) I sort of feel like those are the moments that are most delicious for TV yes. comedy as well. You know, when you when you really really cringe, when you're really really horrified, yeah. when you want to laugh and cry at the same time. <laughs> yeah. That's that's totally the bittersweet stuff we were looking at.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. So, which brings me to my next question. Um, so you wrote like books before the film. So, I want to know what the for you what was the difference between like writing for the page and then writing for like film, uh, TV.
6: Well, yeah, you know the main difference, writing books is really lonely. Yeah. <laughs> You're writing it by yourself. The only other person who's looking at your work uh, is your editor. and in, in, my, in my case, I'm really, really lucky to have had an amazing editor and publisher, Chris Fike, and yeah. you build a really intimate relationship with them. But at the end of the day, it's basically you at your desk going slightly insane and developing weird smells. You know, you you could be writing your book in your underwear and no one would know, which is how I predominantly wrote both of my books. Um, But with television writing, which was a totally different muscle that I was flexing because um, my background isn't TV writing. I did study it at university, but hadn't done too much with it. But it is this whole... um, Rhythm of lots of discussion. You are at a writers' table. You've got a whiteboard. You're throwing up ideas constantly, and that took me a lot of getting used to the idea that I had to verbalise a lot yeah. and and talk to people, and talk to people. Yeah. So, um, but now that we're in season two, I really feel like it's my favourite thing in the world. It, the writers' room, when you're prepared to do it, is essentially like the best dinner party that you could have, and it's a dinner party where you're coming up with incredible ideas and sharing the most intimate stories of your life. So as much as it's me um, writing these stories and these plot lines that are inspired by or based on my actual family, a lot of people in the room are talking about their experiences of when their parents split up or they're talking about their experiences of being a parent or they're talking about their experiences of being um a racial minority like there are are so many things that everyone in the room brings in and that gets woven into the story right right um i was just
3: gonna ask seeing as your show is basically about your family and Mm you um like i write myself and um like then you
5: do, you don't only write. He's he's, a, he's 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 writing a poetry chapbook right now. He's, he's being very modest. Anyways, amazing.
3: <laughs> anyway, so um, I write and uh, I like and I like talking about the subject of family. Um, and uh-huh. one of my I guess worries for me personally was, uh, is when I do eventually like um get work out there, are people going to assume things about family? Are People going to um think they know me or know my family and how that works? So is that one of your was that one of your concerns when you were Writing or,
6: Yeah, look, I, it, it's funny, I think it might surprise people to hear this, but I am very protective of my family as much as I've exposed them to the world. Um, and the thing is, you know, my, my worst nightmare is if my family would be upset by anything I've written about them. And over the years, you know, when I was writing columns for Frankie, I, I'm a columnist for Good Weekend at the moment. If I do write about them, I want to make sure they're okay about it and happy about the way in which I write about them. And for me, I'm usually write, writing about them with a great deal of affection as well. Even if they are shown to be flawed people, which we all are, um, I want to make sure that we understand why they're acting that way. You know, why my dad or my mum or the characters of my dad and mum on screen behave in that way because no one's a villain in situations like a, a marriage breakdown necessarily. And it, I don't think that was totally the case in my in my parents' divorce either. So there were some rules, um, like for instance, if I'm going to make people look like buffoons, I have to make myself look like a bigger buffoon than them because that's usually the case. And two people, when they read or, or um, see your work, uh, they know when you're being mean and if you're writing about people in the spirit of meanness people will pick up on that, that very quickly as well um, so I, so I you know when I wrote the family law the book I printed out the manuscript and I showed them all a draft of what I was writing because it was very important for me to to make sure they were comfortable with it and luckily for me as you might know either from reading the book or watching the show, my family's uh, boundaries are pretty loose anyway, especially when it comes, you know, and especially, especially my mother. So I'm pretty lucky that I've got people in my life who let me get away with a lot.
4: So, you know, we were talking about diverse stories, I guess, when you were talking about being a Chinese-Australian family, talking about, you know, being gay in that context as well, in an Australian context. Um Do you think we're at the cusp of a cultural shift, being more receptive to these stories? So, like, what I usually tell myself is it's not that the audience is not ready. It's actually pretty overdue. I actually think there is a market. I think there are audiences who do want to see these stories. Um, Is that a sign of a cultural shift, or has it always been there?
6: I think it's always been there in some ways, just not on television. Like, for instance, there are a lot of... We've got a really great literary culture, um, to an extent, extent a really... A good stage culture as well. Television's really resource intensive, and because we're a smaller country, I think producers and broadcasters are really averse to risk. Um, and to do something different is risky. And so, for a long, long time, Australian TV has been very, very same, 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 same. Um, now, I think when you've got shows like Whatever you think of them, you know, that Meet the Habibs is a very, very different show to um, The Family Law, but Meet the Habibs is also now a commercial success. So I imagine some networks would be looking at that thinking, wow, we don't need a predominantly white cast to make a show successful. I hope that people are looking at the family law, thinking similar things about our kind of show as well. And I think as time goes on, the more diversity you get of shows, the less these sorts of anxieties about representation will become an issue. Similarly to how, you know, I don't think white people ever watch shows about white people and say, that's such a stereotype of white people. That's because there's such a... a diversity and such a range and variety of representations of white people that we don't really care about that stuff. That's the point we need to get to at the in the Australian industry, but I think we're only just at the starting point. Um, what will be great is when Australia recognises that, you know, when it, when it comes to commercial television and SBS nowadays to an extent has um, a commercial aspect to how it runs its operations. Um, the US is discovering right now that that stories and TV shows starring non-white faces actually sell and really do well with a broad audience, not just with an African-American audience or Latino audience, but across the spectrum. I think you're right. Audiences are totally ready for it. Um, I think you're going to find hopefully soon that networks and, and production companies are following suit.
5: Thanks, Ben. I really appreciate you coming on the show, and, and I honestly do think um, we'll, we'll be looking back at your show maybe 10 to 15 years down the line and thinking this was the start of, of something new. Like We're just hearing about the, the new kind of Indigenous superhero show. There's Ready for This um, Indigenous mm. Teen show coming out. There are so many other things coming out, and I think you're, you're a part of something happening.
6: Oh, thanks so much, you guys. I I mean, to be in the company of shows that you just mentioned, to be even mentioned in it, is 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 pretty awesome. So, thanks a lot. And I I get the feeling people will say the same thing about the podcast too. Uh, that I, this I hope is a so. <laughs> really important conversation to have.
5: All uh, right, thanks for coming on the show, and really appreciate it, Ben.
6: Thanks a lot, you guys. Take care. Uh- Tony Abbott was really never a deeply popular figure among the electorate. Yes.
0: Tony Abbott faced
6: some hostility of his own. morning, sir. How are you? How are you? Oh, really? <laughs> and uh, really, the reason why his prime ministership has crumbled is because he lost the support of the electorate and ultimately the governing Liberal uh, Party. This is
5: not an easy so, day for many people in, in this building. Now, Leadership changes are never easy for our country.
2: The the Prime Minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. The the Prime Minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. Uh, My pledge today
6: is to make this change as easy as I can. Goodbye, Tony. Bye-bye. Goodbye, Tony. Tony, time to go. Goodbye, roll over. Nothing's hopping in the bed. Bye-bye, Tony.
5: Now we're going into the week that was segment where we highlight the most notable or infamous stories from the past week. First up earlier this week, Sydney Morning Herald columnist Paul Sheehan wrote an article about a woman called Louise and what was said to be her injustice with law enforcement, the health department and many a public servant. However, what was stressed in the, uh, in the article was the involvement of Middle Eastern men and more broadly Muslims. Writer and broadcaster Richard Cook wrote an article in the monthly debunking many, of the unchecked source information from Sheehan's. He joins us now. Thank you, Richard, for coming on the show. How was this able to, to get published um, with so many holes in the article?
2: Look, I think that's a really excellent question to ask. And to answer it, we kind of need to go a little bit into Paul Sheehan's history. And uh, he's someone who has a track record as a journalist of kind of being a little bit of an intermediary between the mainstream media and and what you might call more sort of fringe groups or folklore and rumour, these kinds of areas of public discourse. Uh, And that works both ways. So he will take sources from these kind of, you know, blogs and and less sort of mainstream media, but he will also glean information in other ways, which then gets fed back uh, into this same sort of world. So over the years, he has made a habit of writing quite inflammatory um, pieces about race uh, in particular, um, which sort of exist at this slightly anecdotal level, which makes them very shareable and, and, you know, people feel like he's kind of speaking for them. Uh, and he's been doing this for a very long time. And they've been... Ever
0: catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
2: Several occasions where he has tried to get up these kinds of stories before on very flimsy grounds. And other people have kind of stared him down and said, look, you're not doing this. You know, the paper's not going to run this. And what's happened is that he's kind of outlasted all of those people. You know, Fairfax has gotten rid of a lot of very, of very senior staff. So it's really just they're kind of one of their star columnists versus people who are much more junior. And in this case, he has successfully kind of rode over the top of them and. Um, and their misconceptions well they're sort of not their misconceptions, their misgivings about the piece and uh, and he's been successful in doing that, and this is the result
5: because like there are so many because like, I reading your article um, and I suggest all the listeners uh, to check out his article in the monthly uh, there there are so many holes in in kind of like what he was talking about with Louise with her story um, from Fringe groups like Rick Lamashire saying saying there were nothing to do with her, um, with changing her stories every couple of months and years, and as you said in the article, this was able to be found in a 15-minute Google search, which Sheen said he apparently had.
2: Yeah, look, I, I think that his checking was almost non-existent, really, because the once you know this who this person is... Um, you know, she operates multiple personas on the internet. Um, they are conspicuously, you know, problem. The, it's very, very difficult to, to see how you could not do the most minimal amount of due diligence and realize that you had a, a problem here. And, I mean, really, even the story by itself is just so out of The realm of possibility, if you know a little bit about how the police work and you know a little bit about how hospitals work, especially with victims of violence, this would just have to be such an extreme failure of all of those systems. It was very, very unlikely. And, you know, one of the kind of rules of journalism is that when something feels very unlikely, there should be extra checks of it. And it seems like in this case, there were even less checks than usual.
4: Hi, um, Amina here. So, my question. Hi, Amina. Hey. So, my question, you know, after this whole debacle is is this a case of clickbait? You know, was Paul Sheehan basically trying to capitalize on that currency?
2: Absolutely. Um, Paul Sheehan is a journalist who has been very careful to build a fan base among. Uh, right-wing blogs and right-wing forums, especially internationally. Um, So you will see that frequently his work is shared on climate denial forums. Frequently his work is referenced on white nationalist forums, places like Stormfront. And he is aware of that he has this, you know, especially international audience. And so this kind of violence porn, especially with a racial angle, uh, is something that does very well in these in this sort of online environment. So he this is feeding to that and I think this is part of why this has happened as well because Fairfax know that you know he's strong on these metrics. They know that they don't really have columnists who are shared in this way elsewhere with some exceptions. And so yeah, I think that the the clickability of a story like this is definitely part of the reason why it happened. And, you know, when the story was corrected, I hesitate to say that, it's never really been properly corrected. Um, but at the time that amendment was made, uh, it had been shared 11,000 times. So, you know, that's that's unusual for a Fairfax story to get that kind of traffic.
5: You talk about the retraction, right? Um, and in your article, you, you actually say, it's too little, too late to apologize now. But even with their retraction, they do very minimal, like they cut out the most obscene bits of the article, but they keep the the, the like the base of the article there. So, And also, if you look at the comment sections, you, you search in Middle East in, in the comment section, like if you like search for that, you see so many comments about Middle Eastern people, Muslim people, in such a negative light. You put two and two together when you read the article, and then you look at the comments of what the original article was about.
2: That's exactly right. And the original or versions of the original are still being shared elsewhere on the internet. Um, They're still being used as kind of grist for the mill of racists and others. So when you read the amended version, so the two things which have really been removed from the amended version, one of them is any reference to Middle Eastern men, which the paper itself admits were insulting references. And the other is any reference to police and the police actions or alleged police lack of actions what's so interesting about the story as it stands is that if you take those things away there is no reason for it to exist it reads like a very very odd story now something which never really would have been reported at least in this condition so it's whole reason for being was this race angle that you can see that because when you take away the race angle, there's kind of nothing left.
4: So we're always talking about Fairfax media and one of the cases, I guess, one of the big cases of mistaken identity and inaccuracy in journalism for me was back in 2014 when they mistook the identity of the teen terrorist you know the, the whole saga um where they had mistaken another afghan boy afghan australian boy um for demand hider and what that did for the mis- mistaken teenager was severe you know that that boy couldn't even get out of his house um he couldn't attend his own graduation um, So those repercussions are real, those repercussions are harmful, and in that instance, in that instance of Fairfax media's, you know, inaccuracy or whatever, um, you know, that was a personal type of thing. It was a personal um, repercussion. Uh, This one, to me, strikes more as a communal situation. Um, What do you foresee this? What what do you see this as?
2: Yeah, look, I think it's a a combination, and one of the one of these sort of things that this speaks to, I think, is that people talk about lack of diversity in media as being a problem for the people who, you know, it's a community problem, um, but it's also a big problem for the media itself. I mean, we saw that after the Lint siege, where you had media scrambling to try and interpret this event. And it was very, very clear that there were no Arabic speakers, for example, Um, who could translate the flag um, which was being held up during the siege. And I think that, you know, these kinds of mistakes are perpetrated by people trying to report on something that they don't really have any personal experience of to some extent. Um, So that's a factor here as well. But yeah, I mean, these kinds of mistakes, when they affect individuals, when they affect communities, it's just, uh, it's a lottery really, because we're getting mistakes across a whole lot of different areas.
5: And just talking about um, the Sydney siege, I remember talking to a friend who, um, um, a friend from who, who works at Fairfax, who was, who said that they put together a kind of um, a kind of like a, fl- a, a sh- showing of different flags and saying, "Well, this is the Shahada, this is the ISIS flag, and this is this," and kind of like trying to tell reporters, um, "This don't say this is the ISIS flag," basically, and and. Yep. And that that was then printed into to Fairfax as a, a sort of um, a journalistic piece. When originally it was meant to kind of like to tell t- tell young reporters, don't say something that isn't re- like what is basically a lie. Basically, so just to be yeah. in terms of clarity.
2: Um, well, I'm glad that 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 did get printed, but um, it's sort of strange that that. Um you know, people were just flying off the handle, really saying anything they could think of um, without having it checked, without having anyone present to check it properly. Um, you know, I think it does speak to this kind of problem with with not just personnel being of a particular, you know, nature, but of being from a particular background as well.
5: Definitely. And uh, we we've talked many a time about diversity in media, and Richard, really appreciate your time on the show. Uh, and again, everyone who's listening, have a have a look at Richard's article in the monthly. Um, it's a it's a really good article. I think it's been shared on Twitter or retweeted, I should say, over 200 times. So that's I think that's a fair metric of its success. Uh, thanks again, Richard, for coming on the show.
2: Pleasure. Thanks very much, guys. <laughs>
0: I'm banning all rap this year at the awards. Yeah! Don't get me wrong, I love hip-hop. Obviously. But tonight, it's all about soul. Okay, hold
1: on a second. I got
0: another call, wait a minute. Oh, thunder. What's up, young thug? No, honestly, man, you are my favorite artist out right now. But I ain't letting anybody in with no littles and youngs in their name. Yeah. Hang on one second. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, yes. Who is this? Iggy Azalea. Yeah, Hey. Oh, no, 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 no. You can come, because what you're doing is definitely not real. Yeah, uh, yeah I got on my overalls. Yeah, in fact, I'm going to send an Uber for you right now. Yeah, come on, be outside.
4: International supermodel Ajak Deng, who has graced the catwalk for the likes of Calvin Klein, Chloe... Lanvin and Louis Vuitton has announced her retirement from the modeling industry, citing fakes and lies. And while her Instagram announcement didn't explicitly mention racism, she has talked about her issues with that in the past. So compared to her fairer skin cohorts, for instance, she wouldn't get as much bookings. Um, this yeah. is obviously in line with a lot of, you know, models or dark skinned models uh Experiences. Um, I think earlier today we were just talking about Grace Jones.
5: Yeah, Grace Jones. Because like Grace Jones, I feel like was one of. Because I don't think she was um, American. I think she. I don't think she was. I think she was French, but I'm not completely sure. I just know she wasn't kind of like that American. Because a lot of time we have um, black models, but they're more often not American or come from English speaking uh, countries. Opposed to someone who, uh, and as well, like not as dark skinned as, as Grace Jones was, and she was kind of, I think, like a we'll say a a trendsetter, uh, someone who kind of laced the, the the carpet, the red carpet or the black carpet <laughs> um, for people like Ajak, um, and like it's kind of sad that someone like Ajak, who is a dark skinned model, um, who who represents a difference in terms of uh, the modeling the modeling industry, and, and it makes people. Um, uh, black women, uh, dark-skinned black women, look to her and be like, "Wow, there is someone I can I can look to." And especially people in Australia, because she is, uh, she grew up in Australia, I believe, and that's something like I, I don't think we, we hear of many, specifically black or brown, um, like women who who've been raised or brought up in Australia, go off and become mainstream models. Uh, more often than not, it's the Miranda Kerrs of this world, or right. or the I don't know the Kylie Minos of this world, or what have you, opposed to to someone like Ajak. and to see her, queer is just so disheartening, and I think it's just something that we've seen. Like the other week, we were talking about the uh, the Brazilian Carnival beauty winner, uh,
0: the Globaliza,
5: the, the Globaliza, and how she was too black to be to 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 stay in her position. Um, and we were talking about like a lot of people in Brazil are black. Like I think 50% of yeah. the people in Brazil are black. So that kind of thing is just – it's sad because this is the people that represent your country and specific – especially here, um, like a lot of – there's a billion and also people that are black in the world and that's a huge chunk of audience. And even just by saying that, like a lot of people – who would have looked at Ajak as a like a person they could have you know they 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 had a i think a, like like a sense of rapport with because of who she was and uh, yeah, and as you said, like it wasn't explicitly said that she left because of racism, but we all know
4: It yeah, probably was a combination of so many mm, things mm. and you know what's very interesting with her Instagram announcement um she left like a a lengthy um announcement on Instagram. Um, she mentioned that she was retiring, you know, and she was moving back to Australia. How old is she? Um, she's, she's 26. But wow. I th- yeah, but retiring I think was, at 26. Yeah, but I think it was more of the, um, I think it was just the issues that she faced in the industry overseas. Um, but that said, you know, when you talk about the fashion industry in Australia itself is still very white. Um, So, for example, you'll have premier um, department stores in Australia. I think you already know what we're talking about. Um, They will book people like Miranda Kerr, you know, who also have impressive portfolios, to come all the way from the United States, fly over from L.A., come to Melbourne, and do shoots here in Australia. But Ajak Ajak Deng, for instance, has not gotten the same kind of... um, treatment and it's not because she doesn't have a great portfolio she has you know as i previously mentioned she has graced catwalks also, and fashion weeks of of big you know big names and speaking of which uh, the way how the industry is so racist um coming back to the whole fashion week um saga i think i was i was reading an a few statistics and about 80% of fashion week I don't know whether it's in New York or elsewhere, 80% of them are white. Wow. 80% are white, okay? Wait, now, that's wait, wait, 20% wait. for everybody else.
5: Well, wait, wait, Fashion Week. Is, is Fashion Week, are, also, I'm going to acknowledge that I'm very ignorant about Fashion Week and all the fashion and the whole fashion industry. Is Fashion Week a representation of the entire world?
4: Um, okay, so this is where I need to clarify. The statistic that I was reading did not specify
5: Oh, but anyway, like, so, would, would, like, the thing is, like, would Fashion Week say, for example, a Fashion Week would it have, even if it wasn't worldwide, so it's, it's, it's a really bad statistic, right. but I'm just curious, like, um, would it, in, would it entail people who were, um, like, all around, like, m- majority of the world say, would there be a fashion, would there be people who would be coming from other countries yes. for Fashion yes. Week? Yes. Well, oh, let's it. yes. It's a bad statistic. It's an extremely a bad, statistic. bad statistic.
4: Then you know, what's, you know what's even worse? Is if you go to Fashion Week, you know, in India or whatever, you will still see white models there. I mean, you will still see, you know, like, you know, Indian models or whatever. Oh, you'll but, see the, you'll but see you the token Indian, but... You will always see white models. Exactly. They're never short. Even when the designer um, themselves are not white, their models will most definitely be white. And that's just one of the sad um, occurrences in the fashion industry. Put more beautiful people of colour on TV and connect viewers in ways which transcend race and unite us. That's the real Team Australia.
1: You know, you look at the American TV, British TV, it, you, know, has, uh, you know, it's got shows with d- different nationalities and, 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 and not just putting nationalities just for the point of difference, but creating work that caters for um, actors of different backgrounds. In my mind, I see a line, and over that line I see green fields and lovely flowers and beautiful white women with their arms stretched out to me over that line, but I can't seem to get there no how. I can't seem to get over that line. That was Harriet Tubman in the 1800s. And let me tell you something. The only thing that separates women of color from anyone else is opportunity. You cannot win an Emmy for roles that are simply not there.
5: Actually, uh, we're going into our feature, but before we do, I'd like to give a little bit of a shout out to... One of our loyal listeners who gave us a lovely review on, on iTunes. And by the way, you can rate and review us on iTunes as well. and Maybe get read on the podcast. Uh, I'm not I'm not leveraging people right now, all right? I'm just saying, I'm just sharing the love. Sharing the love. Um, Betharan, uh sent us a... Uh, I hope I'm saying your name right. If I'm not, you can berate me on social media and swear at me and, and what have you. That's cool. Um... He, he left a lovely comment saying, love the commentary by the two hosts as well as their guests. They offer incredibly incisive looks into racial politics around the world and take a focus on Australia. They mimic a lot of the thoughts I have as well as opening me up to different perspectives. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. And also, like, I checked him out. You know? he, this guy, is, he's, got, he's got his own YouTube channel. I think it, it's about, he kind of like looks at um, like film and cinema made by people of color. Um, I think it's called... I I forget the name. I'll put the link out on the the post. Uh, Actually, I think you can find it right now. I will look for it right now. It's called... It's a really good channel, actually. I was looking at it. They did a feature, I think, Greenstream Hooligans. Uh, It's called Filmmakers of Colour and Lustre. Check it out. It's on YouTube. Filmmakers of Colour and Lustre is... It's got a pretty decent, you know, channel. Check it out. Uh, Now we'll be going into our feature. All right. The language of the internet seems to be English. But what does that mean for an internet user base of whom 90% live in non-English speaking countries uh, and reportedly 53.7% of the internet is in English? The second highest language is Russian with six... 0.3%. The internet has more or less been anglicized in terms of English, but more specifically Americanized in the regards of news and public culture. However, only 13% of the world's u- web users live in North America compared to Asia, which is home to a whopping 45% of web users. Um, as well as Europe is home to 20, 23%, South America is home to 10%, Africa home is home to 6% and the Middle East 3.3%. Um, and China has added more internet users in three years than there are people in the US um, and there's a growing surge of China, India, Iran, Nigeria and Russia have had more internet users than anyone in the past five years and I mean, I like to think that's a, there's a change happening um, that will hopefully mean there is going to be less English on the internet and a more kind of diverse range of languages because ultimately right now English being as dominant as, as it is on the internet could potentially change the way we see the world in the next 50 to 100 years because it could dramatically deplete languages. It could dem- dramatically deplete writing. Um, it, it changes everything, doesn't it?
4: You know, it's I, I find it interesting when you say that because, you know, English as a lingua franca... Um, came about through colonial imposition of the English language for communication right Um, and so yeah it is threatening the extinction of endangered languages and it has since its imposition um, dating prior to the internet Um, and also it creates less incentive to learn other languages however in a study in 1997 by Geoffrey Nunberg and Heinrich Schutze. I'm going to butcher their names because I have, n- yeah, let's just, good. let's butcher their names. They just wipe just people's names. So this is cool. It's cool. Yeah. They, they wouldn't be able to pronounce your name. <laughs> so back in 1997, they had this study estimating that, you know, 80% of the World Wide Web content was in English. And I think later on in 2003, the Online Computer Library Center estimated 72%. The statistics. It's kind of hard to measure this, you know, because I think Cause the you World know, Web is just way too big for you to, you know, quantify and qualify all of that. But basically, 70 to 80%, that was according to early research. And so now when you come about, um, the statistic of 53.7%. It's interesting because I actually yeah, you read told something me that. else. Yeah,
5: you told me you read something else.
4: And because we do our research. <laughs> <laughs> On the we do race card, independent- we, do,
5: we do independent research.
4: Exactly. So I came with a figure of about 25%.
5: Interesting. So,
4: yeah, so that is a significant shift. That's a paradigmical shift. Yeah, that, that's that's
5: like that's half of what it is. Like that's, that's 53 and 25. That's almost like more than half. Like it's, it's half, exactly almost.
4: Exactly. And so one of the biggest things that has happened over the past, you know, you could say past decade, is just sh- the shift from just consuming content on the internet to creating content on the internet. And so we see things like Weibo, for example. Yeah, Weibo.
5: It's like, it's a Chinese Twitter. And like, I, I remember talking to, I, I knew a few Chinese journalists um, who, who, who are from, from the UK who went to China. Um, uh, they they use Weibo, and uh, so many people use Weibo. Sports people in China, even if they're not, if even if they're not Chinese, they like Australian footballers that have gone to China. They have humongous Weibo uh, followings. Like this is like a serious kind of. It's it's. I think they're like I've read somewhere there's like 500 million users. Mm -hmm. That's a whole lot lot of users.
4: And you know what I think it's great because there's two things. One is that all of a sudden these western centric platforms are they have incentive now to actually diversify their language bases, yeah, you they know. Do. They they need to start um, translating, they need to start having all these options. But on the other hand, it's great that local platforms can arise because English, you know, does not cater you know, western centric, let's say, platforms don't cater to them. So I guess it's a two-way kind of thing. Um, but that said, I think we we're witnessing a power struggle where the gatekeepers, you know, of linguistic power on the internet are getting scared because Western-centric, um, you know, people and and platforms they actually don't understand what's well, like, being like written on n- the internet 90, anymore.
5: Ninety percent of the, the the people that use the internet don't even come from English-speaking countries. Exactly. And like we were just saying, like Asia is forty-five percent of. Um, the internet, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that was done in. Tw- that was a study from 2012. And Africa, six percent, like that shift could be dramatic. And I'm pretty sure it's more than six percent of the internet is made out of made from from people that live in Africa. Like dramatic shift four years is a lot of time in terms of developing, um, uh, like development in general. And like every year, uh, like like uh, like I said earlier, there's an intense shift of people from China. Um, Iran, Nigeria, um, uh, Russia—who are accessing the internet and are multiplying their user base year on year out—so there is a change happening, uh, and and hopefully it's a change that allows for a more democratic sense. Like when I say democracy—I don't mean like a faux freaking democracy <laughs> that um, that people sp- uh, espouse—but um, uh, 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 like in, in terms of like inequality in terms of. A preserving of language. We were talking to Darren a few weeks ago about how he was able to um, maintain their, like his community are ma- maintaining their language, and um, his his younger um, relatives are, are using the internet and they're using that to to contact people that are relatives, to contact community, and to preserve language and culture. And that is what like that is hopefully what we see more more or less on the internet in terms of grassroots people. Um, community groups using the internet as a sense of documenting. And you, like it's very – like like government have no control of the internet and obviously continue not to have a control on the internet. Um And it's also free. The internet is free. That's mm-hmm. the thing. That's the that's changes, that's game changer. That's <laughs> the game changer, right? Everything is f- – like you have to buy for a website. But in terms of the internet itself, it is it is a free mm-hmm. – Source. Like you can use Twitter for free. You can use right. Facebook for free. The, all these things to, to actually put out content that isn't like the normal kind of traditional means is free. And as you said, that that is the, the biggest game changer.
4: Um, and so you were t- just talking about earlier how um, non-English speaking communities can document... Um, was it grassroots movements? Yeah, grassroots, community-led like community community-led
5: room, yeah, movements, yeah.
4: Right. So that's more like an activist advocacy kind yeah. of. Yeah. Uh, right. Um, you know, on that note as well, I was thinking more of, you know, linguistic, um, not just diversity, but um, continuity. So I know that there is a place in Madagascar which basically used the Internet to change over their language from analog to digital. So now we can see how the Internet itself is helping document and immortalize um, languages with few speakers. You know, I mean, if you have a language with 100,000 speakers versus another language with 50 million, the chances, um, you know, the incentives for international organizations or even... Um, Western-centric organizations to come in and find value in actually establishing a website dedicated to that language would be minimal. But as you talk about the democratization of you know, the Internet and language, I think that is one example where, um, I guess where you could say a minor language or definitely not a lingua franca, um, has been able to capitalize on the Internet and social media platforms to document their language and to immortalize it on the net.
5: Definitely. And it's kind of like a way of changing how, how we see things, right? Changing how we're using um, the, the internet, how, how people are using internet in general, and kind of like giving scope for, for a more, like you said, democratic use of the internet. And I guess we're about done for this week. Yeah, we are. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. We had a like a jam-packed show for you all. <laughs> we had Benjamin Law, we had Richard Cook. We had a bit of conversation between us and we've covered, a, I think, a lot of things. Um, that's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget, you can, if you're listening, wherever you're listening, you can subscribe on iTunes, Acast, you can find us on Mixcloud, you can find us on Podcast Republic app for Android users. That's really good. Um, app if you want to listen, if you're on Android. Um, you could also find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash racecard show. You can find us on Twitter at the race card. Find us on our website. We have a website now racecardpodcast.com See like like a website. We have a website. How amazing. I know, it's great. You know, and I hope you like our our logo as well. Beautiful yeah. logo. Shout out to uh to Bez who uh who designed that logo. Awesome design. Um, and yeah, thank you for, for listening and we'll, well, we'll, before
4: we sign off, you mentioned how people can find us. Where can they find you?
5: Oh, they can find me at Ahmed Yusuf 10, the number 10 on Twitter. Uh, hopefully we can get you on Twitter someday. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but, but until then, keep listening to the race card and we'll, we'll be back next
0: week. Thank you for listening. Bye. How old up?